Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for July 24th, 2018. On today's episode, we'll talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler and answer some listener mail in the mailbag. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. The Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So before we get into things, guys, uh, we had a bunch of uh, emails uh, come over, you know, into our mailbag over the past week. Uh, first off, I want to say all, thank you for all the uh, the positive response to our James Gunn episode. Uh, hopefully we did it well. Um, we did have a couple people that did write in uh, with, with, with some critiques. Uh, George. Z from Australia wrote in that uh, he's a 42, 42 years old man, and uh, as you mentioned, time changes us. Not only that, having kids changes us even more. I don't really know what my opinion would be if I was 42 with no kids. Uh, I, do, I do know that if I was 28, I would be frustrated about all of this. Basically, he goes on to say that, uh, you know, having kids changes his perception of this whole James Gunn situation and making pedophile jokes. Uh, admittedly, all of us uh, here on the podcast, none of us have kids. Um, so that that is a valid viewpoint uh, and, and worth mentioning, I think. Um, another email came in from Carrie P., who... Um, who also praised our episode, uh, our James Gunn episode. Uh, she wanted to play devil's advocate, as I sometimes do. Uh, she says, I have been in education for 14 years, and there is a federal push for teaching digital citizenship. Uh, we are going to do our best to educate our students that the footprint they leave on social media can have a huge effect on their future. A lot of the teenagers are fans of Marvel and James Gunn. Uh, this might be a good learning experience for them to see how comments uh, they have made in the past can keep them from potential jobs and future successes. Um, also, I think, a valid point. Although I, I think uh, it would be more valid if, I feel like, if everybody was on board with this being uh, just... I guess. Um, and one last email uh, from L in Texas. We, we we did this um this podcast uh, I think probably two weeks ago at this point, uh, talking about leaving trash in a movie theater after you you know you are done with the movie. Um, you know our opinions were all over the road with that. Uh, but L from Texas writes in that. Uh, she had worked in a theater for six years, uh, most of the time spent as an usher. Uh, the chain that they worked for had a system for cleaning theaters on a bu on busy nights and days, which was called the 10-step system, in which if you have at least five ushers working to clean a theater, it, it requires five ushers to clean a theater. And uh, she goes into this 10-step program. I will leave the, the whole... Uh, details in the show notes, but basically she says if if everyone would just take what ushers would consider b 
big trash out with them that could eliminate an entire step here and would uh you know make things a lot easier uh she also does go on to say that uh you know i i threw a facetious devil's advocate <laughs> during the discussion that uh if we all clean up their trash that would result in less jobs and she says that would not be the case i was just kidding <laughs> okay <laughs> that was that was that was just a joke um but anyways uh do any of you guys have anything to say about uh any of these listener emails I wasn't here for the theater discussion, so I'll just say if you leave your trash in the theater, you're a monster. And that's it. <laughs> there, yes, Jacob. There, there, there's no case where it is okay to leave trash in the movie theater. That's a question, actually. I mean, if if the building is on fire and you have to run <laughs> out real quick, I guess that's a good reason. Otherwise, that no. Be more flammable. Just yeah. treat your treat your environment with respect. And envi- not necessarily environment, meaning nature environment, meaning the place you're in. And be aware there are people who have to deal with your messes. And you know what? The people who are cleaning up your messes have like three other jobs in the theater. I used to have friends who worked at theaters. And there was always a case where they were bouncing around things to do. And trashy theaters always made them stay late because they had to deal with other things as well. So I'm sympathetic for all the ushers and people working in the theater who have to deal with people being slobs. It's, it's gross. Don't do it. Be a human being. Yeah, I think we can agree on that, uh, Jacob. Uh, anyways, let's jump into the water cooler. Uh, let's start with what we've been doing. Uh, Chris, you traveled to see some seals over the weekend. Uh, I sure did. Uh, yes, we were all, not all of us, but a lot of us were in San Diego for Comic-Con. And before I went to San Diego, my wife mentioned there is a, uh, a beach uh, close to San Diego where you can just go and see seals and sea lions just hanging out. It's in a, it's called La Jolla Cove. So when I had some downtime at Comic-Con, I hopped in a cab and I, I drove out there. It was about a 30 minute drive from where we were staying. And I was, I don't know what I was expecting. I thought like, ah, maybe I'll see one or two, but I got out of the cab and they were just everywhere and they're just hanging out on rocks and chilling and swimming. And it was like magical because uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like there are people there too, and there are people at the beach, and they're swimming, and the seals are swimming with the people. It was like something out of like this weird fairy tale that I was not expecting, and it really lifted my spirits uh, while I was feeling down at Comic Con. And then I went back to Comic Con and had to get in a line, <laughs> and I was instantly miserable again. But for uh, the brief time I spent just chilling with these. Uh, these animals it was it, it was pretty damn nice it made me realize you know i, I uh, mo- for most of the time what i had seen of california was like you know our hotel and the block that comic-con was on <laughs> but you know driving out to this part it made me realize like oh california is actually very beautiful if you're not in a hotel room or in hall h all day yeah if you're not stuck in the convention center uh, I once took a seal boat tour in San Diego, and I saw, I, I kid you not, like one or two seals. It sounds like you had a much better experience uh, taking a cab out to uh, that, that cove. Um, you know, Jacob also went out to San Diego for Comic-Con with us. He arrived a day early, and he did a, a, a similar thing. He went and saw some animals somewhere else. Jacob, tell us about it. Yeah, I had such a great time going to San Diego early that I'm going to a vacation next year where I take a few days off, I go early with my wife, pre-Comic-Con, see the rest of the city. Because when the city's not choked with nerds, it's a really fun place. But I went to San Diego Zoo, uh, which I've been told by many people, family members, friends, the internet, that's the best zoo in the world. And I'm, I think I feel it's hard to argue. It's so beautifully maintained. The entire thing is also a, um, a botanical garden. So even like even every path you walk down is surrounded by trees and bushes and landscaping and so many animals. Like I spent hours and hours and hours there until my feet hurt. And I, I didn't even scratch the surface of being able to luxuriate and spend my time and actually see everything. I had to skip certain exhibits I wanted to see just because I was so tired from actively exploring and taking my time and 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 rotating rotating between rushing and taking my time, rushing taking my time based on what I was looking at and. I had such a blast. I mean, it's a little expensive to get in. It's 50-something dollars. But I feel like I got my money's worth. Um, it, it's huge. It's like the yeah. size of most theme parks are bigger than even. It's yeah, like they, they, they have like a gondola system that will take you from one side to the other. That's how big it is. Yeah, that gondola system is 
terrifying, by the way. I don't. I. I, I norm, I'm normally okay with heights and theme park rides, but that gondola was, was more terrifying than any roller coaster I've ever been on. And yeah, it was a great place to get lost. I mean, when I first got there, I was like, "There's no central hub. There's no like easy urban design layout. How do I navigate this park?" And I realized, oh, the point is not to navigate. The point is to get lost. So getting lost at San Diego Zoo is something I recommend to anybody visiting that city. And on the uh, opposite end of the spectrum, uh, when Comic-Con was wrapping up, after everybody else had left the city or was on their way home, I hit up the uh, show floor one more time. That's when all the uh, vendors start realizing they need to start selling things quickly or they have to pay to ship everything back. So I managed to buy $500 worth of Marvel omnibuses, which are huge hardcovers, for $100. By, 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 just by saying, I want these, can you give me a deal on them? Did the math? It was like five hundred bucks for all of them normally, and I said hundred bucks just to get just to get get them off the table. So I went home with a couple thousand pages of more Marvel comics to read over the next few months. That is insane. Those things are huge. I think that's probably more than just a couple thousand pages. Yeah. Um, okay, Brad, uh, what have you been up to? Well, I was at Comic Con as well, so I've been pretty busy on that front. But besides that, I did. Enjoy canceling my movie pass. <laughs> I have been so upset with the service that they've been providing. I've been upset with all of the changes that they've been instituting, especially the recent surge pricing. It was extremely frustrating, and that was basically the last straw for me. So I canceled it this month, and while I'm here in Los Angeles hanging out at uh, Slash Film Headquarters, a.k.a. Peter's Place of Residence, I signed up for AMC A-List. And I used it at a nearby AMC theater. And the experience has been pleasing so far. It's easy to just go on through the AMC app and find your seat and buy your ticket. And you get your you know concessions, discounts, and, and whatnot. And it's just, so far, I'm very pleased with it. Don't have any problems. We'll see how that continues as I keep using it for movies. But uh, just from the outside looking in, it looks like it's going to be pretty satisfying. It's It seems like it might... Not be since it's only three movies a week, but very rarely do I see more than three movies a week. And even though it's twenty dollars a month, the 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 price still makes so much sense. You know, after I see two movies in a given month, it's basically worth the price uh, that it costs to pay each month. So I'm hoping that it sticks around. And that's something that works out for AMC because it's uh, working better than the movie pass, in my opinion. And you're not worried that you canceled your movie pass and you won't be able to subscribe to their service for, what, nine months? No, not in the least, simply because I've been a subscriber to movie pass for six years, since before they even dropped their price down to $10. I've been a member since they were charging um, anywhere between uh, $25 and $60 for their service, depending on what market you were living in. And so for a while, I was paying $35 a month, and I was still getting my money's worth out of it, so... The fact that I can't go back to MoviePass now and deal with the surge pricing where people are, are paying, you know, uh, five to six dollars um, for their, you know, quote unquote peak time movie tickets. I'm, I'm completely fine with with not worrying about that. By the way, not to derail this podcast, but I, I often do and I will. Uh, this whole surge pricing is ridiculous. Like, you know, when you take Ubers or Lyfts. The idea of surge pricing makes sense. They have less drivers out there, and there's more demand, so they're giving the drivers more money because uh, you know, you know, the demand <laughs> outweighs the supply. Uh, in this case, MoviePass does, you know, it doesn't work in that same way. Um, and uh, you know, I think I saw some people online this weekend complaining that uh, they had to that they were being offered a surge price of like five dollars. And in, in, in their market, it was like an $8 movie. So they were basically only getting $3 off by having MoviePass. That's just insane. Um, but anyways, let's move on. HT, what have you been up to? Oh, so uh, this weekend, my friend wrote a play called Heartbreak Hitman. And it debuted at DC's annual Capital Fringe Festival. So the Capital Fringe Festival is sort of an annual arts uh, and 
more like play-centric festival that celebrates and supports rising uh, playwrights and other such artists. And my this is my friend's first play. Her name is Lee Jan Greco. And it's actually based off of a true story that she heard on NPR one day. And it's about a um, guy who gets hired to break people up. And um, it's kind of a reverse hitch. And it's really fun, really witty, really fast paced dialogue and uh, she had a premiere on Friday and it's going until the 29th so if you're in DC and you happen to be uh, wanting to go see something for, for a night and maybe take your girlfriend along or boyfriend along to see a movie a play about people breaking people up uh, it's really fun and um, it's a gr- it's a great way to experience the Capitol Fringe Festival in DC so uh, that was the first thing I did this weekend and um, then I also celebrated to uh, Zhou, which is a Vietnamese uh, sort of tradition uh, in which we celebrate like the death anniversaries of some of our ancestors. I actually wrote a little bit about this tra- tradition in my write-up for Coco because the uh, Day of the Dead uh, is sort of reminiscent of this tradition that we have in Vietnam, except it's um, in with Zhou, it's for, it's every, it's celebrating specifically a, a specific person's uh, death. So it's not all in one day like it is for Day of the Dead. And so uh, for us, it was um, my maternal uh, grandfather, my paternal grandfather and my paternal grandmother. And uh, they both happened to fall on the same day. And these are not solemn occasions at all. They're days in which we um, we all gather for a big sort of family reunion and we uh, cook the favorite dishes of that ancestor, that dead relatives that they used to have and have put it on an altar and sort of uh, remember their, their their life and their legacy and everything. And actually when I wrote that, Coco piece and my family all read it and went to see Coco together. That film actually impacted us a lot in the way that we celebrate Zo. Uh, and that was because Zo was always kind of a thing that we did and it was kind of a necessity. But now we're making more um, concerted efforts to sort of keep the legacy of our uh, relatives and our of our ancestors. And it's really interesting how that movie has impacted us so so much so that like my uncle, for example, is tra- trying to write a book about uh, one of um, my grandfather when he first moved to America. So it's amazing that that movie made such an impact. And it's really great to see that uh, happen and uh, do that with Zoe every time, which is a, always a good time just to see family and eat a lot of great Vietnamese food. Very cool. And um, it should be mentioned that fringe festivals uh, take place in a lot of uh, big metropolitan cities. So if you live near one, I would venture to say, you know, Google and see if there's a fringe festival near you. It's always worth checking out uh, the local artists doing their things. Um, What have I been up to? Uh, Last night, while Brad went to go see a press screening, I uh, ventured to the Magic Castle, which I haven't been in a couple weeks, uh, to... uh, see the future stars magic week which basically is um the the oldest anybody who can perform there during this week is 21 years old so it's all you know teenagers uh usually you have to be 21 to get into the castle but it's uh it's all uh younglings performing um watching them perform and uh being so much better than I probably ever will be uh was is very uh humbling and um and I actually I think uh our Comic Con crew can attest I've been trying to practice this move called the Anaconda which is kind of like this dribble between your hands of uh, you dribble cards between your hands and you dribble it in a motion that uh the car- cards go vertical almost like it looks like a snake uh, and I do it really poorly. I don't know what I was doing wrong. All during Comic Con, I was like trying, like while I was waiting in lines and stuff, I was trying to practice it. And uh, w- within minutes of coming into this, uh, the future starts Magic Week. Um, there, there was uh, I want to say probably a seventeen or eighteen year old girl who uh, was performing it like five billion times better than I, I can do and I asked her for advice and she gave me some key advice that uh, has improved my uh, anaconda um, I'm still not up to her level but uh, I uh, very humbling experience indeed and um, 
I, I, I wanted to use this opportunity to plug a movie that I love, a documentary called uh, Make Believe. It's produced by uh, Seth. Um, who's the king of Gaonkai? Uh, anybody? Seth Gordon. Gordon, yes. Seth Gordon, who made King of Kong and uh, some the horrible bosses and some bad comedies. Um, but anyways, this is a documentary. It uh, tells the story of every year they have this teen magic competition in Vegas uh, hosted by Lance Burden. And uh, some contestants came from Magic Castle's teen uh, organization. It's it's not a boring documentary. It's If you've ever seen Spellbound or anything like that, one of those competition documentaries, uh, it's it's kind of in the fun of fun in emotion of those kind of things i would highly recommend checking out checking out make believe uh but let's move on to what we've been reading jacob you've been traveling you always have a book with you uh what have you been reading well for the past couple years or maybe maybe a year and a half uh i've made a habit of anytime i fly i always bring a book by lee child with me it's for two reasons uh one lee child is a very easy read and when you're six foot four on an airplane you want something very easy to distract you because you're in constant pain for the entire flight uh and you just want and concentrating on anything that requires a lot of effort is genuinely difficult uh but also lee child is incredibly entertaining uh he writes the jack reacher books uh of which they made two film adaptations starring tom cruise and every time i fly i go uh, pick up the next one in the series and I'm reading them chronologically, starting with the first one released in 1997, and I'm on book six right now, and they're just incredibly entertaining. Uh, I, I really, really love the first Jack Reacher movie, the sequel not so much, uh, and that's what encouraged me to check these out, but uh, they had, they're definitely their own flavor. The movie's not a perfect adaptation of them. Uh, it's they're, The best way to describe them is if you imagine that old 60s and 70s style anthology show where the hero wanders into a town, solves a problem, and leaves. You know, I think Incredible Hulk, Fugitive, Quantum Leap. Uh, it's pretty much those. I mean, literally, one of the books I read ends with the bad guy's house on fire, the girl saved, the kid reunited with her mother, um, the cops in the way, and Jack Reacher nods his head, sticks out his thumb, and starts taking away. That's literally how one book ends. Uh, and Lee Child, um, he knows he's writing pulp. Uh, he's like, but I, on Twitter, I describe him as the William Shakespeare of violence because nobody writes action. He's like, he does. Nobody writes, uh, arms breaking and neck snapping and gunfights like he does. And I really like Jack Reacher himself as a hero because he's this, uh, very much a wish fulfillment character for, for men, male readers. He's six foot four, uh, 300 pounds of pure muscle. Um, but he's also like respectful of women and, um, and like really righteous and always correct like you can always tell a character in a jack reacher book is a villain or a secret villain because they don't believe jack reacher when he tells them the truth uh because he's he's always right and people are always impressed with them whenever he's right uh and they're just really fun and i i enjoy them a lot and they're sometimes problematic i feel like lee child being a man in his 60s at this point uh is not the most um uh, up to speed on what's okay for certain things to happen in certain books. Uh, sometimes he fridges women. Sometimes he um, does. He writes things that I don't think are intended to be sexist, but maybe come off a little, come off that way to a modern reader. But there's no getting around how fun they are. And I'm enjoying reading, reading them in order because Jack Reacher ages in real time. So uh, on book six, it's been five years since the first book, and he's now in his 40s instead of his 30s. And it reminds me of Sherlock Holmes, where uh, he aged in real life as. Arthur Conan Doyle wrote him. So at some point, Jack Reacher is going to be an old man. I love the thought of old man Jack Reacher still traveling around the country getting in fights. It's so fun to me. Very cool. And uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, ben, you saw a couple or a few movies this week. Uh, what, what did you watch? Yeah, my wife is a really big fan of The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which is Ben Stiller's 2013 movie. Uh, we watched this. This is, I think, probably her like maybe fourth time seeing it. And I think it might only be my second time all the way through, maybe third. Um, and I, I remember when I first saw the movie in theaters, I was not crazy about it because I thought that the product placement was really distracting. Um, but knowing that this time and and trying to actively put that out of my mind i was able to appreciate the movie a little bit more um it's a very earnest movie i don't know if you guys have ever seen this or, or have any uh, positive feelings about this movie but i think it worked a lot better for me this time around than it has in uh, in times past um it yeah like i said ben stiller is just like a very earnest filmmaker he's you can tell he's genuinely trying and and he um 
you know, you, you can sense him behind the camera that that he is a, a guy who has uh, empathy for his characters and he really um, he cares a lot. And that that shines through. Also, the movie is really gorgeously shot and uh, there are some really, really cool editing transitions that happen in it. So I don't know. It might be worth another watch if anybody uh, maybe wasn't crazy about it the first time around. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what. I was going to say, he's very stylistic, and uh, because that earnestness, I think, it results in a very divisive response to his movies, I think. Yeah, yeah Jacob. I in, uh, yeah, but I want to agree with you like heavily on this, because I don't love this movie, but um, there is such technical craft on display in this movie from the, behind the camera that I think when Ben Stiller gets a script that I love, like, I, I'm excited to see what he does because he's clearly a filmmaker. He's clearly a guy who's like spent decades acting and watching how directors work, and he, he knows what he's doing behind the camera. So I'm excited for him to, to get a movie that I actively, truly love because he clearly has chops. Yeah, for sure. Um, the other thing, uh, one of the other things I was watching was Annihilation. I rewatched this film because uh, my wife Amy had never seen it, and um, we got it on uh, through the Netflix Blu-ray uh, subscription plan or whatever that I still, you know, have them mail me discs. Um, and man, this movie is just as good as it was the first time I saw it. it I, I'm glad that it was uh, very high up on my best of the year so far list. Um, it just sort of uh, I guess proved itself once again in my mind as being uh, just a stellar piece of filmmaking. And I think, um, you know, it's weird, like with thrillers and stuff, a lot of times, once you know what happens, um, the the physiological responses tend to go away. Um, and like when you watch them again, but this time my stomach was just, you know, in in knots and my heart was beating just as fast as it was when I saw it in the theater for the first time. And uh, at the end, when when the movie finally gets to its um, really like enigmatic conclusion, uh, I was just as mesmerized as I was the first time. So I, I really love this film. And I think um, if you haven't seen it, and you've heard us raving about it do whatever you have to do to uh to go see this movie it certainly won't be for everybody but i think it, there's so much i mean like walter Mitty, there's so much technical craft on display there um that it's definitely worth checking out uh and we've we've probably talked enough about that movie on this podcast before where i don't need anybody else to to uh, agree with me there because i think everybody pretty much does um and then finally i watched north by northwest which also my wife had never seen um i i just go through uh, turner classic movies on my DVR uh, and just, you know, randomly DVR a bunch of uh, classics that either I haven't seen since I was, you know, 12 or 13 years old or uh, just ones that I've never seen, period. And I just, you know, let a bunch of them build up and then just try to go through and and uh, and cross them off and, and reexamine a lot of these uh, films that are in like the the official film canon or unofficial film canon, I guess. Um, North by Northwest, I hadn't seen since probably, yeah, since I was 12 or something like that. And um man, this is just a really solid thriller. It's it's uh, Hitchcock to the nth degree. Um, Cary Grant is uh, is very, um, you know, suave and, and uh, Cary Grant-ish in the film. Um, I found it really strange to see a very, very young Martin Landau in this movie um, and knowing him primarily from his work in, you know, much later in his career, like when he played Bill Lugosi and Ed Wood, um, it was sort of shocking to see him as like somebody who is, you know, approximately our age, um, and he's very tall and, and uh, spindly and uh, really creepy looking. And he plays a really great, like, number two bad guy in this movie. Um, and, yeah, the the stuff at the end, like the uh, the Mount Rushmore sequence, the, the chase and all of that is all largely pretty well executed for 1959. I mean, they, they didn't have like the full extent of green screens, obviously, that we do now. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it's still uh, that movie holds up pretty well, I think. So just want to give a quick shout out to North by Northwest. Very cool. It's a classic. Uh, you guys all talked about Won't You Be My Neighbor uh, so much that I had to finally see it. I saw it at my uh, local AMC theater with Brad. It was uh, he uh, saw it for a second time since Sundance. Um and uh, this movie is as inspiring and emotional. Every, it, it's everything you guys said it was going to be. Um, a few thoughts on it, though. I, I think Jacob brought up that, you know, there was someone in the documentary, I think a friend early on that uh, basically asked the question, you know, how much of an impact has uh, Mr. Rogers had on our world? And uh, as inspiring of a documentary as this is, it's kind of depressing. <laughs> I guess modern day at times, it's kind of depressing to think that maybe he hasn't had as big of an impact as 
maybe he should have. I don't know. Maybe that's the uh, the cynic in me. Uh, you know, in, in the place and time we are in. Uh, it's also interesting that he. Um, something I didn't know is he was a lifelong Republican, and it's it's so interesting to me living in the t- times that we live in, or even you know the last. 15, 20 years, not like recent times, that a lot of the stuff that Mr. Rogers stood for and a lot of stuff Fred Rogers fought for uh, is totally like, I think, on the opposite side of uh, right wing ideals. And it's just so crazy to me to think that he was a Republican. I know he was a Republican in different times, Um, but uh, yeah. Um, I would highly recommend this documentary, uh, see it, bring some tissues and, uh, it's definitely worth seeing. And, um, I have also been watching on Showtime, the Sasha Baron Cohen series, Who is America? Um, I'm not going to say this is as good as his, you know, previous movies or TV shows. The characters that he portrays in this show are not very compelling in my mind. Um, but the show is all about getting, you know, people in office <laughs> to say and do things that they shouldn't be doing. And there was like a scene in this most recent episode where, uh, I think it was elected, uh, elected official, um, like he gets an elected official to, uh, <laughs> racistly imitate a Chinese man and shout the N word. Uh, over and over again, and I almost had to rewind the show to be like, "Wait, th- th- this guy's an an elected official doing this." Um, I do realize that, you know, a show like this is a big production. That um, you know, you've seen these uh comments from these people that appear on the show saying how they've been duped and stuff, and, and it's uh. Not that I feel for them in any way, but obviously they are being tricked and you are, there's a camera in front of you and you're on the spot, uh, again, not giving them any uh, any leeway here because they're saying things that I would never say in front of a camera or not even in front of a camera. But do you know what I mean? Like it, it, there would be no point that you could trick me into saying these things. Uh, but I'm almost like with Sasha Baron Cohen stuff, I'm almost more fascinated by how these things come together than the actual thing itself. Like I would, I would love to see a documentary showing how they, you know, did this, how they pulled this off, you know, how, uh, you know, how a show like this is written, uh, Nathan Fielder, uh, I directed this episode, this latest episode, Brad, you watched it over, over my house. This is the first episode you've seen. What, what did you think of it? Yeah, um, well, just to clarify, too, Nathan Fielder didn't direct the entire episode. He was one of the directors of the yeah. of one of the segments during during the episode. But yeah, this was um, <clears throat> previously. I had only seen the first uh, or ten minutes of the first episode that was released online because I don't subscribe to Showtime. But we watched the entire second episode, and it's just it's it's simultaneously shocking, but also not surprising to see you know elected officials and people who are supposed to be you know respected and. Uh, you know, have significant power in certain places, behave this way. It's it's just like I, I, for half this episode, I was just like laughing in shock and like staring with my mouth wide open and like hiding my face because I couldn't believe that p- this you know people behave like this. Especially Jason Spencer, the the Georgia lawmaker who probably was the worst person on this episode. But it's just yeah, it, I i love sasha baron cohen for like exploiting the you know thing, things like um things like this and like showing how people really are and it's just amazing to me that these people do this in front of a camera like knowing full well this is going to be something that is seen by people like i can't even uh, fathom like being asked to say these things let alone like actually following through with some of the stuff that they do and uh kudos to sasha baron cohen too for being able to even hold his composure because like if this guy did some of the stuff in front of me, I don't know if I would be able to like keep myself composed and stay dedicated to it without just like laughing at him for being just a complete moron. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's so crazy to see the kind of stuff that he is able to get on camera. I just, I don't know. It's, it's wild. Um, Jacob, you have been revisiting the mission impossible series. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, I've, 
I've edited and currently editing and will be editing many Mission Impossible posts this week on SlashFilm.com. So I figured I might as well refresh my memory, uh, at least in the films that I like the most. So I watched Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible 3 last night. I'm going to watch 4 and 5 tonight, and we'll see about 2. <laughs> we'll see if I find the time for that mess. Uh, but revisiting Mission Impossible 1, uh, what I love the most about this movie is that uh, director Brian De Palma took this big Hollywood job and made a Brian De Palma movie. Uh, it has everything you expect out of his films, uh, just at a bigger budget with movie stars. And seeing this kind of strange auteur who's been making these sort of grimy, sleazy thrillers in the 70s and 80s apply that aesthetic to a Tom Cruise movie is really fascinating. And the movie really works. And De Palma uh, kind of never really went back to making movies this big again. He, he's kind of fallen into obscurity in recent years. But it makes you wonder if what alternate timeline do we have where Brian De Palma followed the path of, of his old friend Scorsese uh, and kept on making big movies and like working with studios well into his 70s? Because this movie proved that he can make a Brian De Palma movie uh, at, at a massive budget with Tom Cruise in the lead. And that's so cool and so exciting. Uh, Mitch Rochelle 3, I don't love it as much. I think J.J. Abrams is still finding his voice here. I mean, I agree with those who think it looks like a TV show. It, it's shot almost entirely in medium close-ups. He hasn't learned how to use the frame yet. And by Star Trek and Force Awakens, he's learned the power of iconic imagery and how to fill a frame and how to use widescreen as a strong effect. But even with Mission Impossible 3 not looking great uh, compared to other films in this series, it has a relentless energy that I love. It has that J.J. Abrams wit, that J.J. Abrams uh, intensity that just powers you through it and keeps things going. And I think they're, these are both such fun movies. I mean, I've been on the record saying I prefer 4 and 5, but 1 and 3 are no slouches. They're a ton of fun. And also, I just haven't seen Fallout yet, but I know the next person we speak to has seen Fallout. Yes, uh, Brad, you went and saw Mission Impossible Fallout on Monday night. What did you think? Yes, I have been so excited to see this movie ever since the first reaction started coming out, um, since the film screened before Comic-Con. Uh, it was torture not to be able to see it so soon, and I've been waiting with great anticipation, and the movie did not disappoint. It is like action filmmaking at its finest. Chris McQuarrie knows how to orchestrate some very well-crafted and incredibly exciting action sequences. Um, there's mo- a moment in the middle of the movie where it's just a non-stop back-and-forth chase that is reminiscent of the um, uh, middle of the Dark Knight, where the there's a, the chase between you know the Joker and and Batman, and uh, when the Joker's trying to get Harvey Dent, and and there's just a you know a, a constant barrage of, of action that's happening. Uh, Tom Cruise is a beast. Uh, you know, there's no other actor like him working and putting in the kind of dedication to this performance and these stunts. And what I like about this movie too is, aside from the big set pieces and stunts that you expect. It also digs in a little bit to the emotional core of Ethan Hunt and like how much he cares about the people around him and how conflicted he is about, you know, choosing to be a, uh, an IMF agent as opposed to having, you know, a personal life. We really get um, a, a nice piece of that, <clears throat> um, especially through some of the supporting characters as well. And it's, I was just, yeah, I, I was so impressed by this movie. I, I can't wait to see it again. It is uh when, when you know you sometimes you see the cheesy quotes people say it's a non-stop thrill ride this movie really is that like it is there there are things that, that were happen and like the way sequences continue you're laughing because you're like oh my god this is so crazy like i can't believe this is still happening um but it's so great i uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm excited to see it again and also on a weird note uh jonathan lipnicki happened to sit next to me during the press screening which was just kind of odd <laughs> wait for those who don't know who is that uh, that is the little boy from Jerry Maguire, who is now a grown man in his 20s. <laughs> I don't know how you would recognize him. I, I would have. Because uh, there was one of, at one time there was one of those BuzzFeed stories that goes around that's like, hey, remember so-and-so? Well, now they're super hot. <laughs> and you took note of that, of, of course. Um, okay, so what, what else have you been watching? Uh, I also got a chance to see Death of Stalin on my flight out to Comic Con. Um, we didn't. We recorded the water cooler episode just before I flew out there, so uh, this it's a little bit of an old watch, but uh, it was available on my flight. And if I would have seen this movie before we did our uh, halfway point um, list of our favorite movies of 2018 so far, this would have been somewhere on my list. 
It is hilarious. Um, I, I love Armando uh, Iannucci's work on Veep, and I love In the Loop. Um, and it's he brings that level of uh, wit and hilarity to the um, the time in, in history, you know, when Stalin died and uh, Russian power was being transferred. And what's so cool about this movie, uh, and it makes it even funnier, too, is that all of the characters, these are all Russian characters, too, aren't played with, you know, silly Hollywood Russian accents. They're all played by, you know, uh, British, I- I- Irish, and some American actors, and they're all just doing their normal voices. Um, you know, Steve Buscemi doesn't put on an accent. Jeffrey Tambor doesn't put on an accent or anything like that. And it's not really distracting at all. And if anything, it just adds to the authenticity of the performances. And it makes the comedy that much stronger because none of these actors in this movie are are doing anything broad or trying to get laughs. They're putting in genuine performances that make the proceedings that much funnier. And I think that's what made me laugh so much is it plays you know so real that you don't care that steve buscemi is playing you know nikita khrushchev as as just you know an american american guy essentially um and it's just yeah if you get a chance to watch it i think that you'll um if you like you know fast talking witty sharp comedies then you'll you'll really enjoy this chris you also saw mission impossible fallout what was your reaction uh, I loved every minute of it. I actually went so far as to add this to my top 10 of the year. This movie, uh, rules. It's fantastic. Um, I still think I like rogue nation just a little bit more, but the energy of this film is, uh, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a film that was so like relentlessly entertaining. Like it, it, it's wants to entertain you every single second. And it succeeds. And um, uh, continuing on with Brad said about uh, the you know the emotional stuff, this film actually kind of rehabilitates Ethan Hunt because, uh, and I wrote about this in my very lengthy Mission Impossible piece, but I felt like Rogue Nation finally tried to address who Ethan Hunt was as a person, and they they pretty much boiled it down to he's a crazy person who doesn't care about anyone or anything except winning. And I feel like uh, maybe they realized that was the wrong way to go. And in this film, they they go out of their way to say multiple times, like, what a good person Ethan Hunt is. And, you know, that, that sounds like it might be forced, but it actually really works. And I was surprised at how well it works. And uh, I don't know. I, this is definitely, like, the best movie of the summer. Like, no other movie is going to top this. Not even The Meg, I'm sorry. But... Um, uh, it's it's phenomenal. And as I was walking out, I saw some people being like, eh, that wasn't that good. I wanted to like hit them over the head with a, a cartoon <laughs> mallet. Like, get out of here. This movie is fantastic. So yeah, Mission Impossible Fallout rules. I I drove home blasting that stupid Imagine Dragon song from the trailer, even though I don't even like them. That's how pumped I was. <laughs> and you also saw another movie this week? Yes, I, I watched Rampage on Blu-ray, the Dwayne Johnson monster movie. And why is that movie so bad? I don't understand. Uh, I, I watched it and it's like relentlessly dark. And if you're making a movie based on a video game starring Dwayne Johnson and CGI monsters, it shouldn't be dark and serious. It should be a fun movie. And like every step of the way, this movie is going for really like dark and serious stuff, like right down to like really... Uh, very serious music and I just uh, it, it it bothered me I was expecting a fun romp and I got like misery for an hour and a half yeah I, I love Dwayne Johnson I don't understand what he's doing and the filmmakers he's choosing to uh, make his movies with I wish uh, he had a better selection of projects because he is so likable and enjoyable but uh, the films he's choosing just are not that uh, HT what have you been watching so I'm one of the few people on this team who doesn't get access to a lot of early screenings, but I got to go to two last week. Uh, not for any big ones like Mission Impossible, Fallout, but I saw Searching and Blind Spotting early. So Searching is a movie starring John Cho, and it's a movie that Ben has been raving about since he saw it at Sundance. And it wait, deserves wait, wait. Ben, all that Ben's praise. Been, Ben's been talking about this movie, Searching? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, so it's a movie starring John Cho, and it's a 
film that's told entirely through uh, computer and phone screens, sort of in the vein of Unfriended. And while that sounds like a gimmick, it actually works really well for the kind of uh, story that it tells. So John Cho stars as a dad whose daughter goes missing, and you see this the case kind of unfold as he finds out more about his daughter, and uh, more twists and turns get involved. And it's really suspenseful. It's so taut. It's so well constructed that the 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 whole structure on the screen never feels once like a gimmick, uh, which is astonishing. Honestly, there are some parts where they have to stretch it a little bit, and you and you can you kind of get out of the movie for a little bit because of that. But otherwise, you're just like on the edge of your seat the entire time. And uh, John Cho is amazing. Everyone in this film is, is uh, really naturalistic in their acting, except for I think Deborah Messing, who feels stilted in a way that I think kind of made sense for a character, but was a little bit odd for me, but I really liked this film. It's so good and one of um, the best suspense films I've seen recently. And uh, I highly recommend it. It comes out in theaters in August. So, uh, and then another movie I saw was um, Blind Spotting, uh, which also took me by surprise. It's a film that stars David Diggs of um, Hamilton fame. And he is plays an ex-con who's in the final three days of his probation. But then on the last day of his probation, he witnesses a uh, police officer shoot an unarmed black man. And it kind of spirals from there in which he has kind of in, comes to term with, terms with and interrogates like the... Uh, like issues of gentrification, of racism, of police, um, of racial profiling and stuff, all within the span of these three days. And it's it's it takes place in Oakland, and it feels so lived in. Um, and is actually shot at the same time as Sorry to Bother You, which also was take t- took place in Oakland as well. And I think shot like in similar locations. Um, And they both offer these really different, but really essential, I think, portrayals of Oakland. And it's, um, it's just so good. It's so fraught. It's funny, too. Um, And it's just, um, it's really powerful, uh, in a way that kind of started to bother you is but in a very different sort of manner. And David Diggs is phenomenal in this film. There are some parts, um, this won't be a spoiler, but there's a parts in the film where he sort of bursts into like these long sort of rap uh, dialogues. He raps his dialogue and they often come at these really peak emotional climaxes and it works so amazingly well that you, in the way that you wouldn't think it works. Uh, It's it's so good. Um, I I recommend blind spotting a lot. It's one of the, my favorite films I've seen uh, this summer so far and it's really good. Uh, you, You saw something else as well, right? Yes. So this is a movie that uh, just appeared on Netflix recently. Netflix really needs to do a better job of promoting its non-original films, by the way, because this movie got kind of got dropped unceremoniously on Netflix. And it's Mary and the Witch's Flower, which is an animated film directed by Hiromasa Yonabayashi, who was a former Studio Ghibli animator. He directed uh, The Secret World of uh, Arietti. That was the title, right? Yes, The Secret World of Arietti, um, which is one of the last Ghibli films. And this is uh, his first film with the new studio called Studio Ponak. And um, it's based on The Little Broomstick by Mary Stewart. It's a really lovely, uh, charming film about this girl who uh, kind of gets swept up into this magical world of witches and a wizarding and like a witching, witching, witch academy. And um, it's it kind of hits a lot of the familiar beats of a lot of Studio Ghibli films. I recognize some sort of narrative structures as well as some even familiar scenes in a way that I was kind of like, oh, Yonobayashi is kind of leaning into the Studio Ghibli uh, namesake a little bit. But it's still really beautifully animated and really charming that I, I recommend it a lot. Okay, let's talk. Let's move on to what we've been eating uh, at Comic-Con. Brad and I went to Taco Bell in the year 2032 for a promotion, a cross-promotion with Demolition Man. Uh, Brad, tell us about it. Yeah, so for whatever reason, Taco Bell decided to make good on the inspiration that Demolition Man provided um, in a fictional future where Taco Bell wins 
something called the Franchise Wars and becomes the only restaurant that exists, at least in the area of uh, San Angeles, the merged metropolis of San Diego and Los Angeles. And so uh, as part of a cross-promotion for bringing back their nacho fries, they decided to create an installation at Comic-Con where they recreated a futuristic Taco Bell from the year 2032 and turned it into a fine dining experience featuring Taco Bell food. Um, this was a very surreal installation because they, they used a real like steakhouse that exists in San Diego and just made it over a little bit with uh, Taco Bell, you know, uh, decorations, futuristic things. They had a, you know, a neon sign in the middle of the restaurant. They had a bunch of framed paintings that looked like the future of Demolition Man where Taco Bell was always featured. Uh, they had shirts on sale featuring the futuristic Taco Bell logo, a shirt that said Be Well and Taco Bell, another one that says Greetings from San Angeles. And you sit down just as if you were at a, a fancy restaurant and they brought out uh, a four-course meal for you to partake in, featuring uh, meal, the, the, the food was described in a very futuristic way. Um, like, for example, the first course they bring out, which was directly inspired by Demolition Man, was called the Joy Joy Hors d'oeuvre, and it's described as having masa geometrics, corn four, legumes, fungi, tomato aspic, onion su- uh, suarez, uh, avocado, and cilantro and capsicum. And uh, along with that, there was uh, a few, like I said, three other courses, and it was it's all it was all real Taco Bell food for the most part, just presented in a much more upscale fancy way you know with like sauce drizzles and just presented in a very visually pleasing yeah like uh, like those uh nacho fries were presented in like this dry ice container so like there was like fog coming out of it yeah and then like the they gave us the uh those cinnamon twists that they have but they included this uh really tasty like sweet cream sauce that you could dip them in um and then like they had a part of the aesthetic of it was they also had a piano guy who was there playing music live and he played, you know, uh, pop rock hits from the seventies and eighties, but just like the movie, he also played commercial jingles. Um, and then they also had a machine out front that was, uh, give you morality violations. And so I, I got one of those. Um, I violated the auditory morality statute for listening to immortal music or uncensored mini tunes. <laughs> and also we should mention in the bathroom, the, the, the three seashells. Indeed, the three seashells were in the bathroom, but they were out of order, so we weren't able to use them properly. Not, not that I would know how to use them. Um, but let's move on very briefly. At Comic-Con, we were in a hotel room without a refrigerator. Uh, you know, we stocked up on food at the local grocery store for the convention. And I bought, uh, I bought a thing of bagels. Uh, and uh, because we didn't have a refrigerator, I didn't have any spread, no butter, no cream cheese. So I, every morning I was eating bagels without any spread on them. And apparently that has divided the Slash Film staff, uh, half of which think I am a monster for doing for eating bagels not toasted without any kind of spread. And uh, those who think that that is the right way of eating them. Uh, so I thought very briefly, uh, if you guys could sound off, Brad, let's start with you. If you're eating a bagel dry, all you're doing is having basically the equivalent of four slices of dry bread, which is insane. A a good bagel needs to have cream cheese on it, or at the very least, butter with some jelly. If you want to be even, you know, have a little bit more excitement, put a little bit of cream cheese and jelly on it. Make it make it even tastier. But eating a bagel dry is the definition of insanity. Okay, first of all, this is an everything bagel. There's some taste to it. It's not just eating four slices of bread. Uh, HT, am I insane? Yes, you are. (laughs) Because bagels are already loaded with carbs. Uh, They're such a dense bread that you might as well just go all the way and actually enjoy this this meal uh, instead of eating this piece of dry cardboard. I think that Brad already described as that, but that's... I'm going to double down on that because I cannot eat bagels without at least some cream cheese. One time, my roommate uh, finished all my cream cheese, and I was so angry that I left a passive-aggressive note. And so that's how passionate I am about cream cheese. Eat it with cream cheese or some other beautiful, you know, accoutrement because 
it's that's what bagels are made for. They're they, that's why they're flat. They have they're made for toppings. Well, well, I'm in creative circumstances here. We don't have refrigerator. Um, I don't know what bagels you guys are eating. It's not like I'm eating New York City bagels, but none of the bagels I have ever eaten taste like cardboard. Uh, Jacob, uh, am I insane? Well, I'm just gonna say three names: Adolf Hitler. Idi Amin, Peter Serena. <laughs> this is a truly monstrous thing you've done, Peter. And I'll never forgive you for it. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, I believe a bagel cut in half, crisp brown with a with butter and a little bit of jalapeno jelly is one of the greatest creations on earth. And the thought of that poor bagel being eaten soft and uncut and untreated <laughs> with delicious toppings is one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life, Peter. You should be ashamed of yourself. Ben, I need I need you to stick up for me here. Like this is this is not crazy. So, Peter, I would stick up for you, except the untoasted thing. That's really where I draw the line. I'm actually okay with eating. Have toasters at a hotel? <laughs> what, no, you don't, what you guys... don't, don't buy bagels, then, Peter. Don't buy bagels. <laughs> don't pack this to a toaster. Well, what am I supposed <laughs> to eat for breakfast before I run out to go to like panels at Comic Con then? Pop-Tarts or something? I don't know. Um, yeah, it's... Wait, uh, you eat your Pop-Tarts untoasted? What a monster. I, I can eat Pop-Tarts <laughs> untoasted. Um, I prefer them toasted, I think. But, uh, but yeah, it's you know, I, I would much rather eat an untoasted Pop-Tart than an untoasted bagel. Um, but, you know, on for anybody out there, I, I actually will eat just a bagel plain as long as it's toasted. Uh, I have no problem doing that. I think, I, like, I personally... Like toast- I feel like toasted, if it tastes more like cardboard than untoasted, if you, if you don't mean, have any spread on it. I guess that's that's up for debate, Peter. I think my my preference is to put uh, a slice of like deli meat, like ham, on it, and and sharp cheddar cheese. And see, now you're uh, making make, a, like a sandwich, bagel sandwich. Yeah, it's it's legit. But um, okay, but yeah, for... I, I would definitely go uh, toasted plain. I have no problem with that, Chris. Uh, we haven't heard from you. Where? What do you? What do you say on Bagelgate? There is literally nothing wrong with a plain, untoasted bagel, and the fact that you all have this very hard stance on it makes me question what's wrong with all of you. There's nothing wrong with it. What's it's wrong deli- with you, Chris? Listen, if you can't enjoy a plain, untoasted bagel, you're eating shitty bagels. That's all it boils down to. You're going to shitty bagels are us and getting really shitty bagels. Oh, like, I can't all go to the, the fancy upscale bagel factory I'm you have poor, in Philadelphia. <laughs> Look, a, a good bagel is not that expensive. <laughs> they're very you're, cheap to produce. Look, You're uh, from Cream Cheese Town. You're from Philadelphia. Why are you rebelling, Chris? Listen, cream cheese is disgusting, first of all. I, yes. I'm not going to put that on I mean, a yes. Straight to hell, sir. <laughs> The cheese is not meant to be creamed. It's just a strange combination. <laughs> Tell that to nacho cheese. Uh, Tell that to Taco Bell. Um, Jacob, what have you been eating? I usually don't chime in here because I usually eat the same things over and over again in Austin. But visiting San, San Diego early, I managed to see uh, and check out some restaurants. Um, based on the recommendation of my hotel concierge, I went to Breakfast Republic. This uh, apparently very popular, very hip, relatively new breakfast place. Uh, really good omelet. Really incredible potatoes. Uh, even the toast was good. And they had a homemade jelly that came with it, or a house-made jelly. It was a really strong, huge breakfast. I barely got, barely was able to tap into it before I was done. Uh, then for lunch that day, I had a Carnitas uh, Snack Shack, this sandwich shop on the pier by the uh, Midway, the old museum um, that they made out of an aircraft carrier. I had this ridiculous sandwich that was uh, bread, uh, pork, um, German sausage, I think, and other things. It was just ridiculous, and it was, it was very good as well. But my uh, big big pleasant surprise, I went back here a few times, even during Comic-Con, I had to sneak away and go here, was uh, La Puerta, this uh, Mexican restaurant, or, or Tex-Mex uh, restaurant, located maybe about a 15-minute walk from the convention center, and really incredible margaritas, one of which was spiced with serrano peppers. I loved it. Uh, really, really good salsa, really good uh, um, chips made in-house, um, really good tacos. It's like just genuinely a, a good food. Uh, like I'm, I, I said, I, I'm, I'm from Texas, so my standards for this kind of food are high, but I was, this did not let me down at all. Um, 
I've tried a few other places. There was this place, even even closer place to the convention called Blind Burrow, which was it was solid. It was good. It felt very touristy. It didn't have the um, uh, unique flavors of La Puerta, but I, I enjoyed it well enough, even though they had a, a very strange queso that had potatoes in it, which I had never seen before. I think it was a better idea than it was executed. Uh, my last meal in San Diego was the worst. Uh, I was at a place called Serrano's that a Lyft driver recommended to me. And I should have known uh, I should have left after my first margarita, uh, which was just bad. But I said, maybe the food's good. And no, the food was not good. It was my first California burrito, which I didn't know was a thing. It's a burrito that has French fries in it. And I'm sure it's delicious. It was not California burritos are awesome, Jacob. I'm sure they are. Like I said, I I was excited at the concept. But this one was a very disappointing one. I look forward to going back to California and trying a proper one. This one was a letdown. I do want to say I did did try to find... um, some like places outside of the Gaslamp District, uh, some places that are you know, a bit more local favorites. So I wouldn't be playing tourists the whole time. But the one place I went to was, um, uh, let's see, Las Cuatro Milpas. This um, family-owned, small, dingy restaurant where with, with a tiny menu, uh, run by the same family for 30 years. Rave reviews, smelled delicious. Hour-long line to get into the door. I waited, got in, cash only. I only had a card. So sorry, San Diego. I tried. I tried to explore the outer uh, edges of the city, uh, but I, mo- I I failed in that end. But also, in between all this, I'm constantly drinking. If I wasn't if I wasn't at Comic Con or working, I probably had tequila in my system. But that was my that was my San Diego trip. It was great, very delicious food for the most part. It sounds good. Uh, lastly, in the food section, Brad, what have you been eating? Yes. Uh, aside from going to the future of Taco Bell dining. Um, when we got back to Los Angeles, after we had some brunch, we decided to partake in some dessert. Uh, and so we stopped at this place called Kettle Glazed, which was recommended by your girlfriend, Kitra, because apparently they're famous for making cruffins, which if you know anything um, about the cronut, which is a donut crossed with a croissant, uh, this is basically a croissant crossed with a muffin. Um, and apparently they're famous for it. And so we got one of those and tried it and it was pretty tasty. Um, it was about exactly what you expect. It's, you know, uh, a croissant that's in the shape of a muffin. It's flaky and, and sweet and a little bit sticky, but it was, uh, very delicious. And, uh, we also had a couple of their regular donuts too, which were also very tasty. So if you live in the Los Angeles area and you haven't been to Kettle Glazed, you should check that place out. Okay. Lastly, let's talk about what we've been playing. Uh, Jacob. What have you been playing on your Nintendo Switch? Uh, I recently picked up Luminez, or specifically Luminez Remastered. I've been here about this game for a long time. The first edition of Luminez was on the PlayStation Portable, the handheld Sony device that nobody bought. But everybody I know who did own one said that they pretty much put Luminez in their system and it never left. It was the one game they played on PlayStation Portable for years, even after that system was abandoned. And playing on the Switch, the new version has been sort of spiffed up a bit, given a lot of options and different modes. I can see why. This is pretty much as someone said... Let's take Tetris, take those core fundamentals that made Tetris a good game for decades, and just refresh it and make it into something new and exciting for a modern age. So it's it's blocks falling and you matching colors, but instead of doing lines across the stage, it is uh, trying to create squares uh, of four or more. And the game has this incredible visual style, it has amazing music that's blasting in your ears, and it is just intense. It is an it rotates between being incredibly calming and incredibly white-knuckled, sweat-pouring-down-your-face intense based on the stage, based on the music, based on the visual style of the stage you're in. And I played it at the airport until my uh, battery died and, uh, on my Switch. And it is $15 on the store, I believe. And it is, if you haven't played it before on a previous system, it's also available on PlayStation, Xbox, and PC in this new edition. And it is a phenomenal puzzle game. I can't recommend it highly enough. Very cool. Uh Brad, while you were in San Diego, you were also playing some games. Yeah, so I found out that uh, whenever there are bigger conventions that happen around the world, uh, Niantic likes to increase the spawn rates for a certain Pokemon in Pokemon Go. Uh, Within the game, there's this Pokemon that is called an unknown. Uh, It's basically a little uh, black like creature that has one eye and it comes in 26 varieties that are all in the shape of the letters of the alphabet. And so because this was uh, San Diego Comic-Con, all of the letters that spell out San Diego Comic-Con were available as unknowns that were spawning way more frequently than they normally do. This is a Pokemon that pretty much never spawns in the wild. 
It's extremely rare. I had never seen one in the wild before. And even in the Discord that I follow, only a couple people had ever spotted one. And they only spotted it because they were using uh, trackers. Um, so this was cool. I was able to get around 40 of them while I was at the convention. So I'll be using those for, for trades for things that I don't have yet, like regionals. Um, so yeah, so that was very cool. And then I also, while I was there, if you listen to our episodes uh, during Comic-Con, you might have heard that I played Ghostbusters World. So I won't do a d- deep dive into that, but I will say... Um, it is a very cool uh, evolution of the gameplay that Pokemon Go offers. It's it's another augmented reality game, but rather than catching Pokemon, you are a Ghostbuster and you capture ghosts. And it uses some of the same uh, gameplay mechanics that Pokemon Go does, but it also incorporates some of the same from Jurassic World Alive. And for, for me, it, it kind of made it a little bit more exciting, especially because one of the cooler aspects of it is that Unlike the other two aforementioned games, it actually uses the Google Maps API to create 3D buildings around you rather than just having a flat map that you're looking at with barely any uh, discernible land features. So it, it makes help makes it a little bit more immersive and the gameplay requires a little more attention and skill, making it a much more in, uh, engaging game to play. So there's no release date for that game yet, but it's expected to come out sometime before the end of the year. Very cool. I want to interject before you guys finish. I can't believe none of you guys who went to Comic-Con went and played Kingdom Hearts 3 specifically to tell me how amazing this game was because I'm so jealous and I wanted to see it <laughs> played. I, did, I didn't want to hurt your feelings, Ishii. I didn't want to come home and then say, like, look what I managed to do. That's why I avoided that section. I'm so sorry. I, I mean, I, I, I walked you. by it and I took a photo and I was going to send it to you, but I had no internet on the show floor, so I could not do that. I didn't even make it over to the video game section of the show floor this year. Crazy. Right. (laughs) Okay, well, anyways, that brings us to the end of Slash Film Daily uh, today. I will link to HG's Cocoa piece in the show notes. This podcast is published every weekday. Uh, You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and SlashFilm.com. Please go send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And uh, they might make the mailbag like the the, the letters today. Uh, Please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.